The homilies for sermons contained in these podcasts were delivered by Deacon Joe Dietz, a permanent deacon serving at Christ the King Catholic Church in South Bend, Indiana, a parish of the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Each homily is preceded by a reading of the Gospel of the Day. While these homilies are the same in content as those preached, they have been recreated to improve the sound quality of the podcast. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Mary set out and traveled to the hill country in haste to a town of Judah, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the infant leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For at the moment the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the infant in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed are you who believed that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, I don't know how many of you might feel like taking a brisk walk from the church to the loop in Chicago after Mass today. But if we did, it would be roughly the same distance from Nazareth to Ein Kerem. Ein Kerem is a neighborhood of Jerusalem that, while in the city today, was a village located outside the city proper in the hill country of Judah during Jesus' time. It is considered to be the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birthplace of John the Baptist. Ein Kerem is approximately 90 miles from Nazareth, the home of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The distance is important if we want to figure out just how long it would have taken Mary to walk, in great haste or otherwise, from Nazareth to Elizabeth's house in the hill country of Judah. The answer would be three long days, at very least, and more likely four to five days, depending on which route she took. Either way, no matter how you slice it, Mary would have made it from her place to Elizabeth's house within a week or less following the Annunciation. Now, assuming the miraculous conception of Jesus took place shortly after the Annunciation, then the time from the conception of Jesus to the time Mary arrived in Ein Kerem and greeted Elizabeth was about a week, give or take a day or so. And yet, in spite of this very, very, very early stage of Mary's pregnancy, there is no doubt whatsoever as to what and whom she is carrying when she arrives. Elizabeth knows it. The leaping six-month unborn baby John knows it. And of course, Mary knows it. And now, 2,000 years later, we all know it. It was not open to debate. There was no choice to be made. Jesus' incarnation, his coming in the flesh, his earthly existence, his divine human presence, His life was recognizable even then. Smaller than a grain of rice, not fully formed, certainly not viable, but living Lord nonetheless. For Elizabeth didn't say, the mother-to-be of my Lord. Listen very carefully to her Holy Spirit-inspired words. And how does this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me. This point is important to us today 
because there are a lot of voices out there that are saying otherwise. This When Does Life Begin issue is being discussed on a daily basis at the highest levels of government and throughout the media. And as church, we cannot let the multiplicity of voices and opinions stand in the way of the truth. But let there be no mistake. While Elizabeth and baby John recognized Jesus' divinity, that divinity was clothed in his humanity. From the very beginning, Jesus was completely human. He did not emerge from the womb working miracles and preaching sermons. He was an infant that needed the same care, nourishment, protection as any other. When Herod's soldiers came looking for Jesus to kill him, he didn't put on some invisible tunic and hide in plain sight. No, Joseph took the baby and his mother and rushed them off to the safety in Egypt. As Jesus grew, it was this same humanity that enabled him to experience the things we all do, hunger and thirst. He knew what it felt like to be an unwelcome stranger. And these experiences all made his sheep and goat story in Matthew chapter 25 all the more relatable. You know the story. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and sits upon his glorious throne, he will separate one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, one group on his right, the other group on his left. And he will say to the group on his right, Well done, for how they gave him food when he was hungry and drink when he was thirsty, welcomed, clothed, and visited him. But the group on his left he will condemn because of how they failed to feed, clothe, or visit him when he was hungry, naked, or in need, explaining to both groups that when they did or failed to do such things for the least of his brothers, they failed to do it for him. Well, in this country today, there appears to be no better example of least or more vulnerable than the unborn child in the womb. And I would suggest that Elizabeth and John, by their recognition of the unborn Jesus, have added to the list of ways we can respond or fail to respond to his need in the person of his unborn brothers and sisters. When he asks us, when I was being knit together in my mother's womb, at my most vulnerable time, how did you care for me? Will our answer to that question put us on his right or on his left. But this crystal clear message about when life begins is not the only message of value in today's gospel. For while Elizabeth and John's recognition of Jesus clearly establishes his human presence, it is their recognition and response to his godly presence that provides another useful example for us today. From the very beginning of his incarnation, Jesus was due and received worship, homage, praise, and reverence. From John in the womb, to Elizabeth, to the shepherds, the magi, to the temple prophets, and the angels. And that is a good example for us to follow, not only because Jesus is worthy of our praise, but because praising Jesus is good for us. For it is by our praise and worship that we recognize and acknowledge his omnipotence, his majesty, his glory, 
his godly superiority to everything and everyone. And over time, it is through that ongoing, continuous expression of our faith in God's lordship over all things and all people that we dispel our fear and anxiety of anything or anyone. For if our almighty God is all that, and yet bends to earth to reach out to each of us from his deep abiding personal love for us, then what is there to fear? You may say, well, it's easy for Elizabeth and John. They were up close and personal with Mary and Jesus. But that is part of the very reason Jesus gives us the Eucharist, so we can be up close and personal through consecration, communion, and adoration. Part of the challenge when we face difficult times is that when we focus on the problem, we get distracted from the one who is the solution. When we truly focus on God's majesty, power, and glory, the problem fades in comparison to God's ability to deal with it. That is why when we think Eucharistic adoration is something we do for Jesus, we are missing the point. Jesus doesn't need our adoration. We need it. For it is in adoring Jesus that we grow in appreciation for his great personal love for us and his awesome power that is greater than anything else in our lives. Can there be a greater source of consolation and encouragement than a growing appreciation of God's infinite power and personal love communicated to us during our time spent in his actual physical presence? So as we hear this familiar story heading into this last week of Advent, let us prepare to celebrate our Lord and Savior from the earliest moment of his incarnation then, as well as to his very presence with us now, giving him praise and glory as we seek to keep him close until he comes again. For questions or comments on this homily, write to Deacon Joe 2017 at gmail.com.